Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Key mistake to avoid is to think that a lack of domain experience is an excuse to not engage at that level of depth, right? It's not. It's actually an obligation to engage at the maximum level of depth that's necessary to solve the problem, but it's an opportunity to engage avoiding buzzwords and using plain English and sort of doing it in a way that makes communication more clear as opposed to less clear throughout the organization. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. How does a former meteorology student and hardware CEO become VP of engineering at one of the biggest and most popular gaming and metaverse platforms in the world? In this episode, we have a conversation with Klaus Moberg, VP of engineering at Roblox, to discuss scaling your leadership and leading teams outside your technical depth. We cover utilizing a maximization function for career strategy and decision-making, strategies to rapidly scale your leadership impact, building technical depth within engineering leadership, Klaus's advice on identifying competitive advantages in order to attract talent, and why you should lean in to asking stupid questions. Let me introduce you to Klaus. Klaus Moberg leads engineering for the Roblox user group. His teams are responsible for the applications and experiences through which over 58.5 million users explore and experience the Roblox metaverse every day. Klaus has worked at Roblox since the summer of 2016, leading teams across multiple engineering and product disciplines, including VR, consoles, mobile, social, and personalization. Enjoy our conversation with Klaus Moberg. Klaus, just to begin the conversation, just want to say welcome. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. I've been looking forward to it ever since we started chatting. So to begin the conversation, there, there's a, a question I want to ask you because we're we're no strangers to non-traditional, sort of like quote-unquote non-traditional engineering backgrounds here. You know, Jerry Lee, founder of VLC, studied geology. I have a background in kinesiology, pre-physical therapy. How does a former meteorology student and hardware CEO become VP of engineering at one of the biggest and most popular metaverse platforms in the world? That's a good question. And it's a question I ask myself every day. Because <laughs> um, I'm not <laughs> entirely sure myself. If you rewind the clock to like 2010 or, or 2009, I was studying uh, meteorology at the University of Wisconsin, thought I was going to be a, a research meteorologist, contrary to popular belief, like from my friends from high school and stuff, I was not trying to be like a weatherman on TV. I was trying to be like something even more depressing, a government scientist. <laughs> um, but there was actually a business plan competition at the time that was only open to students at the University of Wisconsin that was giving away, uh, from my perspective at the time, an astronomical amount of money, $50,000 for 
ideas that would address climate change. And my a couple of my co-grad students and I said, yeah, we should give this, you know, writing a 20-page paper does not sound hard given what we do in our research careers. Like, let's go see if we can compete in this competition. And we wrote a business plan for an app that would help users find the most environmentally friendly food products at their grocery store, which was like sort of at least somewhat tangentially related to our research. Not really like not in the sweet spot, but we at least felt like we knew what we were talking about. We won the second prize, which was $15,000 and started our company. And within six months, I was like, forget grad school. This is way more fun and way more exciting and way more risky. And it holds my attention better than like writing another paper and going to another conference. That company was Snowshoe, was the thing that I've spent the next seven years doing. It went through a bunch of permutations. We ended up having a big problem authenticating transactions, which was a big part of our business model. And we invented a piece of hardware that helped us do that, something called the Snowshoe Stamp. Realized that that hardware was way more exciting and innovative than anything we were trying to do on the app side. So we pivoted the company to pursue that full-time, raised a bunch of money, went through the Techstars Accelerator, raised a bunch more money, spent all the money, <laughs> um, went off to China to figure out how to manufacture our hardware like in sort of a scalable manufacturing process. And the, the primary use case that we eventually landed on for the technology was making toys that would unlock characters in video games. And so that sort of moved me into the, at least somewhat the realm that Roblox operates in, which is 3D immersive co-experience, video gaming, et cetera. Through Snowshoe, I met Dave. Dave convinced me to come and work at Roblox back in 2016. And I've been here ever since. Uh, but the, the day he I got the job offer from Roblox, it was as an engineering director. And I literally didn't know what an engineering director was. I, like, I didn't realize that it like, <laughs> sat in the hierarchy behind between like manager and VP. Like I was like, oh, I'm just going to like, I don't know, lead a team of engineers. Okay. <laughs> Um, I hope they know I'm not an engineer because <laughs> um, if, if they don't, they're going to have a rude surprise when I arrive on day one. <laughs> it is so wild to think the things that you do when you're young strangely <laughs> prepare you for what you get involved in right now. You know, like just yeah. in thinking about your story, like that's such an incredible turn from writing a report, designing a business plan for a climate change company to all of a sudden that pivots you into into this space. Do you ever look back and just go, that was that I can't believe that happened. Yeah, d definitely there was not much in the way of like career strategy. <laughs> I, I think of it much more as like as new opportunities presented themselves, trying to sort of like run some sort of utility maximization function on like, <laughs> well, if I choose A, I, I have to choose between A or B today. You know, let's try to figure out which one is best as opposed to some higher level strategy maintained over a long period of time. Do you do you still sort of run through like a different maybe a different permutation of that that maximization function like and what does it look like? Yeah, all, all the time. I mean, amazingly, given what Roblox has done over the last six years, like I guess for the first time in my career, I actually have the resources to sort of decide what I want to do. And so there's you know stay at Roblox and keep running with this amazing company on this amazing trajectory, or I could go do another startup or, you know, I've always sort of thought like, oh yeah, I'll, I'm like a startup guy. Like I'll go do another one at some point. Um, so the, the current, you know, sort of utility function I get to maximize against is like, what will I learn and what will I get to do if I were to go do my own thing versus what do I get to learn and what do I get to see staying at Roblox? In your career, you maybe get to see this like 100 to 2000 person company growth curve once, right? And I've had the extreme privilege of getting to do that at Roblox over the last six years. 
I'm very convinced that Roblox is going to stay on that growth curve and go from whatever we are right now, roughly 2,000 employees to 10 or 20,000 employees. I also think it's very rare to see that part of the growth curve at least once in somebody's career. And so I, as a result of that, I'm still learning new stuff every single day in my role at the company. And frankly, it's stuff that I, you know, I think I can go start a whole bunch of different startups at different points, but like, I'm not going to get to see this unless things go incredibly well at one of them. And so it seems like a much more unique opportunity to help a company scale through this part of our trajectory than to go start something new. And so that's why I'm still here. And that's why I think I'll be here for quite a while. I want to ask a couple follow-up questions about that journey because I think you're so right. Like the uniqueness of going from like 100 to 2,000 people is such, a, many people rarely get the chance to do that. And so I want to dive into that a little bit, but I wanted to make one quick comment because I'm moving right now and I'm trying to like, you know, offload a bunch of items. I've been very much confronting the problem of finding more sustainable options for like, instead of just throwing away your stuff, like either trying to sell it or trying to yeah. give it away and donate it and all stuff. And it's like, it's really hard. So like the sustainability solution, you're ahead of your time with building a business around that. Um, <laughs> I think that's great. And then you left in the middle of grad school to start this company. I mean, all the cool kids drop out of their PhDs, right? Like that's <laughs> a bad honor in Silicon Valley. I I think I think Jerry Jerry would argue similarly, but I'm, I'm since my my wife is finishing up a grad program, um, <laughs> I'm surrounded by grad students who couldn't even fathom making that decision. So I'm just like, that's a whole nother rabbit hole. My wife also finished her PhD and is far smarter and and more driven than I am. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dive into the, the Roblox experience. So you're right, like this ride 100 to 2000 is so insane. So what was it like in the early experience when you when you first came on board? And talk to us a little bit about maybe the early days and where maybe you struggled with your leadership in those early moments. So like I said, I, I actually didn't know what an engineering director was. And yet I had signed a piece of paper saying I was going to do that for Roblox. The only thing I had done that was sort of like preparation for this was being a CEO of a company for seven years. And walking into Roblox day one, we were roughly 100 people. We still had weekly all hands in the cafeteria where like all human beings currently working for the company were in the cafeteria, <laughs> right? Like none of this like virtual Zoom business. C coming in, you know, the, the sort of unique thing about the Roblox version of that growth curve is that the company had already been around for 10 years. And then in the fall of 2015, those growth curves just hit an inflection point and we started growing much, much, much faster. And Note, that was a year before I got there. So I had nothing to do with it. All the credit goes to all the, the, the Roblox old timers. And so I sort of walked in in 2016 to this company that had been on this growth trajectory for about a year that was like lighting the world on fire and lighting all of our internal systems on fire at the same time. Um, you know, everyone was sort of like holding on for dear life just to keep stuff stood up and functional. I was brought in to do three things initially, lead our, our console development efforts, and there were two different consoles we were focused on, Xbox and something else, and our VR development platform at the time, which was on Oculus, Rift, and HTC Vive. Um, so extension of the PC app, not like standalone VR platforms like are popular today. And I had no experience in building console games. I had no experience in VR. I had no clue why Roblox wanted me to come in and do these things. What I quickly under found out, though, is like nobody had built a metaverse UGC platform for consoles before, and nobody had built a UGC platform for VR before. So it wasn't like I was at a deficit to the rest of the industry. I maybe was missing a narrow slice of experience around how to build a 
console game and how like the console APIs worked in terms of the requirements of the various platforms or whatever. But when it came to the fundamental questions about how, you know, what we now call the metaverse, how should that work on these platforms? I wasn't necessarily at a deficit. I was just coming at it from a different angle. And compared to the uncertainty that I had on a daily basis running my own startup, running out of money, <laughs> having to convince you know engineers to leave a well-paying, steady job at a big company to come work on my team of like four engineers or three engineers and having to establish whether or not they were good or whatever just with the team that I had at my disposal. Um, the problems I faced at Roblox seemed easy. We're 100 people. We're like a real company. <laughs> and we have other people who interview... <laughs> people who can help establish how good they are. We have this incredible growth curve. Like if, if this continues, we're going to be a really big thing. And we have a bunch of reasons to think it will continue. And in hindsight, it has for the last six years. And we think it's going to continue for another decade or two. And so, you know, it's not to say that we didn't have problems to solve or that it, everything was 100% comfortable or whatever, but compared to the context of coming out of the startup ecosystem, uh, and especially leading an early stage startup with no prior experience in technology, having you know not been a previously successful founder or whatever, like this just was a lot easier and a lot more fun. One of the comments you made is I found really interesting where you mentioned that nobody has has experienced building the metaverse. Nobody knew the answer to any of these questions. And so in, in a lot of ways, like you sort of shared those unknowns with different people. What drove you to want to answer sort of those fundamental questions and sort of wade through that uncertainty? You know, I wish I could say that like, again, I had some like grand investment thesis around the metaverse six years ago. And I was like, did this, you know, survey of the industry. I was like, oh, Roblox, that's the one I'm going to join. That's the one that's going <laughs> to win. Uh, I didn't. Like, I met Dave because I honestly thought Roblox could use Snowshoes product. And he didn't want to use Snowshoes product, but he ended up giving me a job offer. And it was a really good job offer. And the more I looked into what Dave was doing at Roblox, uh, what Roblox was doing, and even more specifically, the more I met other people on the Roblox team through the, sort of the interview process, the more I became convinced that there was something special happening here and that it was as interesting as anything else I could spend my time doing for the next couple of years. But there, it did not come from some sort of like higher level strategic assessment of the industry it was like wow they they've built this incredible thing at the time it was like you know it's youtube for video games like there's millions of kids building their own video games and then there's many millions of kids coming to play those games and they have this virtual economy and it's available all these different platforms and like a kid can download studio or, or ide and put a couple blocks on a base plate and publish it to Xbox in like three minutes and be playing on Xbox with their friends, you know, five minutes later, like that's crazy. How could that not succeed? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it wasn't really like a strategic evaluation. It was like the product space and the people and really falling in love with what could happen with the platform that was already built. I want to I want to deconstruct some of because you had mentioned just the the growth inflection point and you know some of the the trends driving it and like you said like how could this not succeed like when you're you're empowering people with these types of experiences and this creativity like that is such a such an exciting moment but like you said at the beginning you have had to scale yourself pretty significantly throughout all of this which involves a lot so I'd love to deconstruct some of like the principles or the approaches around this I guess the the quick question is like what's kind of the scale you're operating at now and how how did you scale yourself to get to that point? So I think the day I started at Roblox, I had about, my organization was like eight people. And at that time, that was like a 
director level role. Um, I, I, I don't think we have any EMs at Roblox today that have an A-person org, or very few at least. Um, today, I don't have an exact count. I think my org is somewhere between 150 and 200 people. The org that I run today is about at least as large as, if not about twice as large as the, the company was when I joined. And in terms of like what that scaling process looks like, in a weird way, my sort of non-traditional background has kind of been a shortcut for a couple of things that I think people with a more traditional engineering background and a more traditional history of sort of being a, you know, an individual contributor on an engineering team before they move into engineering management don't get to take a shortcut, which is, you know, if you're already a senior principal engineer moving into engineering, oftentimes you are the most capable person on the team to do something. A lot of people in that role face this dilemma, which is like, it'll take me an hour to do this thing. It'll take this new college grad on my team a day to do it. Why don't I just sit down and do it for them? But that doesn't scale, right? The, the whole point of, of management is finding ways to have impact on the organization and impact on the product beyond what you can do as an IC. I haven't written a line of production code. I can't, I'm not the most capable person <laughs> to do that work. So it was never an option for me to like do it myself or find a way to have somebody else own it. Like I had to find the right person within the organization to own it. And so I never had to face that dilemma of like, I have to invest in the less efficient way to solve the near-term deliverable in order to make sure my organization as a whole is scaling over time. Mm -hmm. and, and that's been helpful oftentimes. You know, when, I, when I look at sort of my peers who struggle with that challenge, like it's just not a challenge that I've struggled with. I have a bunch of other struggles that come out of not having a formal engineering training, being hopelessly lost in certain technical conversations and stuff like that. But again, I think those are things that you can actually use to your advantage. Oftentimes, the best thing uh, an engineer can do to unblock a technical conversation is, is dumb the conversation down to plain English. And I serve as that forcing function quite often. Used in the right way, some of these sort of apparent weaknesses can actually become strengths when it comes to building engineering teams. There's a certain element of humility that you bring with a lot of things, but also a lot of curiosity uh, when you're you're discussing different topics and like both of those things impair. And correct me if I'm wrong, but like I get the impression that like you help people as like sort of the hero of solving a problem. And in that way, I can imagine like then they are more excited to, to take on things or pursue different things. Is that like kind of a correct sort of take? And is that conscious? It's definitely conscious, right? Like your, your product is only as good as the team that's building it. I haven't run across in my career instances where the product is absolutely amazing, but the team is a dumpster fire. Every once in a while, I guess it could possibly happen, but more often than not, the two seem highly correlated. And so if you can build an amazing team and empower that team in the right way to go solve the right problems, more often than not, you're positioning yourself to build an amazing product. And that was true at, at my startup, like the times I made concessions on team because like it was expedient or we had to do something to satisfy an investor or something like that never ended up benefiting the company in the long run. And I think the same thing's true at Roblox. Like anytime we've not had the wherewithal to put team first, it's really come back to hurt us. And it's one of the, like one of our core values is, you know, sort of put the community ahead of the company, put the company ahead of the team, put the team ahead of the individual mm -hmm. and that really shows. Sometimes when I'm talking with different engineering leaders who are now leading teams in areas where maybe they don't have like a, a similar sort of area of technical expertise, like the fear is like, how do I, how do I quote unquote build credibility or like earn the trust of the, the team? Can you share a little bit about like your perspective on like technical depth with engineering leadership and how that sort of impacts your style and approach? 
Yeah. So I think people conflate the ability of somebody to actually do the job versus the ability of somebody to participate in the conversation. Um, just because I'm not going to be able to sit down and write the code doesn't mean I can't understand the fundamental sort of system dynamics <laughs> that come into to making the right technical choices or, or setting the roadmap correctly or the dependency graph or anything like that, right? Ironically, a lot of my training in environmental science has been super useful here. Like, here's how we take math and apply it to complex systems. Um, it doesn't matter if the complex system is like an ecosystem or if the complex system is, you know, a metaverse technology platform. <laughs> um, it's a complex system. It has flows and basins and calculus and the, the relationship between differentials and integrals is the same no matter which system you're talking about, right? My challenge to myself at Roblox has always been to be able to participate in the conversation at the deepest level necessary to make the right decision. And when we have a decision in front of us and I don't understand the buzzwords or I'm not following the conversation, mm -hmm. it's a good moment for me to find somebody, find you know, sit down with the team, sit down with another leader, whatever, and say, hey, I really need to hear this in plain English. Let's talk through it. And what's interesting is more often than not, again, that actually has benefits on both sides. It lets me be a sort of plain English advocate for the team internally, because like, if I don't understand it, you know, our marketing team doesn't understand it, and our QA team may not understand it, right? Like that's, that's the basic vernacular we should be using anyway. And at the same time, uh, it helps me have an informed opinion when the team's actually making that, you know, just discussing that thing internally. Is, is there a story or an example of, of when that's occurred for you? Because that, what you described there is so important. And I know that's an area of some of the most exciting topics that we, we've had are around like bridging the gap between engineering and quote unquote, the business and to be able to like talk about those things. And so it's like, that's a skill that like people need to learn. Is there a story or experience from, from helping create that exchange? Yeah, ab absolutely. So I think a good example is Roblox right now, I think is like sort of the only metaverse platform that's available on Xbox. I mentioned this already. In the, in, in the Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Conversation, but like when we were first setting out to build the Xbox client, the actual application that would get distributed onto users' Xboxes, right? You know, you looked at sort of all of the other games, AAA games and indie games that were published on the platform, and they all used the Xbox UI kit. The application itself was probably scripted in C++ or something like that, and compiled and directly integrated with all the foundational front-end sort of building blocks that Xbox made available to people on the platform. Roblox, when we started building Xbox, said, hey, if we follow that path across all of our various platforms, we're going to end up with having to support X teams to support X platforms. So if we ever wanted to add a different console, uh, we would need a team to do that. If we wanted to add like a first-class VR application, we'd have to have a team to support that. We'd have to have a team on iOS and a team on Android and a team on PC and a team on Macs. Like N platforms would equal N teams. 
At the same time, it would be really cool if we could have a single team that built a single UI, you know, front-end application that we could then ship to all of these platforms. The technology that was available on most of these platforms at the time was sort of like you know, JavaScript. You build a React app or something like that, and you transpile it, ship it on all these different platforms. Roblox has this unique opportunity, which is that the first thing we do when we bring our platform to a new form factor, console, whatever, is we port our game engine, and we own the game engine. It's vertically integrated. And we sort of said, hey, what would it look like if we actually built the app that lets users access the Roblox metaverse as a Roblox game, (laughs) right? Like, Like everything past the splash screen should just be scripted in Roblox using Lua, which is the scripting language that we provide to our users. And then theoretically, we could have a single code base that powers a first class user experience on every single platform that we support. I walked into Roblox in 2016 right as we were deciding to set out on that adventure. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, one, I've never heard of Lua. Two, you know, I've never worked on a game engine before. Three, I've never built a console title, right? Um, I have no clue what I'm signing myself up for. But again, I just forced my team to sit down and talk me through it. And my team in this case is not just the individual engineers that were reporting to me, but my boss, uh, Current, who was the VP of engineering on the client side of the platform at the time and our chief product officer at the time and our CEO, Dave. I said, okay, you know, talk me through what you thought of thus far and how far we've gotten and what you think the problems are. Do it in plain English, not buzzwords. And I can then sort of take that back and synthesize it and figure out a roadmap moving forward. And again, those conversations, those plain English conversations did a lot to help synthesize the path forward for me, but I think they also helped the engineers and our CEO everyone else involved in the decision-making process. And now Roblox has a single, you know, a single code base that powers the front-end user experience on all of our platforms, which means we have one team building that front-end experience as opposed to N teams, which is awesome. The, the power of being able to, to synthesize and then to communicate and use that then as a means to help align people, that's, that's really great. The, the key mistake to avoid is to think that a lack of domain experience is an excuse to not engage at that level of depth. Right? It's not. It's actually an obligation to engage at the maximum level of depth that's necessary to solve the problem, but it's an opportunity to engage avoiding buzzwords and using plain English and sort of doing it in a way that makes communication more clear as opposed to less clear throughout the organization. Is there a practice that you found that helps you navigate those conversations or like a framework or approach in how you think about that? No, nothing that like boils down to a neat catchphrase or something like that, right? Like, again, like my goal is just to never have the conversation around the problem occurring at a depth that I'm not comfortable with, right? And, and when that starts to happen, when, when you, I feel that I'm in a meeting and I'm not following what's happening, having the confidence to interject and say, whoa, hold on, you know, what is that acronym? <laughs> what, what, you know, what is the thing you just mentioned? How does it relate to this other thing? I think oftentimes people feel that they're going to be looked down on if they're asked those kinds of questions. When in reality, if you know, even if you're not the domain expert, so many of these terms and so much of the communication in this industry is sort of obfuscated behind acronyms and package names and open source project. Like you know, um, boiling it down to that type of communication can be really, really helpful for everyone, not just you. And so I don't think you're doing a disservice to the other people in the room by asking those kinds of questions. When you're looking at like this scale of like your team starting off with eight to then 150, 200, the organization that you're, you're leading, was there anything that you had to stop 
or unlearn as a leader in that journey that you found to be really helpful? It, it always sounds weird to say this, but at a certain point in leadership, your job is to find other people to do all of your jobs, <laughs> right? Like, like that's the only way to scale. If you're doing it, whatever it is, if you're doing it as an IC today, if your role is going to keep scaling, somebody else has to do it as the IC at some point in the future. Um, there's very few things that I've found that explicitly can't be outsourced or delegated, I guess is a better term, right? Mm -hmm. So the big steps for me that felt very uncomfortable, I remember a time when I was struggling to attend seven different standups for each of my individual pods in my organization every single day. I had like an hour and a half blocked out in my calendar and I was going like stand up, stand up, you know, 10 minute stand ups, like back to back for like an hour and a half. And it was horrible because like I wasn't adding value to the conversation that should be happening in a daily stand up. And my teams were having to like schedule this very important daily sort of events around my busy schedule. Um, and it became clear that it wasn't good for anybody. But at the same time, I was like, how can I lead a team if I'm not understanding what they're doing on a daily basis, right? And ultimately, the answer was, I have to have somebody in the room that I trust. And I have to delegate running that daily meeting and participating in it and giving the feed, appropriate levels of feedback and discourse and whatever to somebody else within my organization. And if I'm not comfortable doing that, then I probably have the wrong people in those roles, right? So that's... That's a big one is like, you know, for me, the, the, the big step was like removing myself from like the daily level and eventually like even the sprint level planning and, and sort of standard meeting cadences across the organization felt very uncomfortable, but was absolutely necessary in hindsight. For me, I have a hard time letting stuff go. And so I, I imagine that was probably a challenging thing to do. But like you said, finding the right people to trust in that room is is so important. And again, if you if you don't trust the person, like that's actually a a sign of a bigger problem. If you, if you don't trust them to run a standup, if you don't trust them to, to run a sprint planning or a retrospective or whatever, like that's your leader. Like that's the person that's like literally their job. And so if you can't develop that level of trust, then you have to start asking some deeper questions about why and really sort of start being introspective on that side of the equation. Absolutely. I want to switch gears a little bit in the conversation to hiring and scaling out your team from from like a headcount perspective, because with, with your experience, like you've seen a couple different eras of recruitment at Roblox from the early days to competing with, you know, maybe quote unquote, like pedigree oriented people, the ones that people always associate with like pedigrees and things like that. Um, and you've had to deliberately focus on different areas to, to find talent in different ways in different eras. So I was wondering if you tell us a little bit about your perspective around attracting and assessing talents and kind of breaking out of the patterns that people typically fall with hiring. Yeah, it's a great question. So again, for context, when I joined Roblox, I think the rough expectation, I don't know the exact numbers, but look, I was probably expected to bring sort of two or three people a quarter onto my team, like that would have been like really good. I'm sure over the last year, there have been quarters where my team's grown by 20 or 30 people. So, so something like a 10x acceleration in velocity. And again, what, you know, the sort of macro environment around that hiring process has changed dramatically from Roblox being this sort of awkward fringe platform that was growing really fast, but nobody had really heard of us unless they had like a nine-year-old kid in their house, in which case they had definitely heard of us at the time, right? <laughs> um, to, you know, we went we went public and 
we metaverse was like this incredible buzzword for I don't know, maybe it still is I'm not I'm not entirely sure but like it's still buzzing for sure it's definitely still buzzing yeah you know to, to like oh my gosh maybe Roblox is the place to work and certainly internally we think like this is a platform that we're where the total addressable market for what we're building is every human being with an internet connection, right? So we, we think we can be another massive Silicon Valley success story. Uh, and that's definitely the way we think we are positioning ourselves to candidates today. The, the things you have to do to find and attract and evaluate incredible talent change dramatically throughout that transition. Early on, I would sort of like if I had to like brand <laughs> the overall experience, it was like, let's go find diamonds in the rough, right? It was not particularly common for us to be in an interview process with somebody who had previously worked at Google or Facebook or one of the other big Silicon Valley tech companies. They, they were interviewing at the other big Silicon Valley tech companies. It was hard to get them interested in what Roblox was doing. Uh, again, unless they had a, a nine-year-old kid at home and were trying to figure out where all this Robux demand was coming from. I think most people at those companies or many people at those companies, like if they're looking for a new role, Roblox is just sort of part of the target community of companies that they start talking to. And it's, you know, they're talking to the other sort of fang companies. And then they're probably also talking to companies, you know, sort of like one step removed from that, us or Snowflake or Databricks or, or whatever. In terms of tactics... In that early on phase, when we were 100 people and we were trying to go find the diamonds in the rough, it was a lot about thinking, where do we have a competitive advantage? And at the time, I remember we, we spent a lot of time recruiting from the sort of traditional AAA gaming industry, because you had a bunch of people who were working at AAA studios who were incredibly strong developers, had, had great educational backgrounds in computer science, but like clearly had a passion for building games. And yet working in the AAA gaming industry, by and large, sucks. <laughs> like, it's really not fun. Like, it's a waterfall development process with incredibly hard deadlines. You have to shrink wrap your code base by October to get it on store shelves by Christmas. And it doesn't pay as well as Silicon Valley tech companies, right? And so here was Roblox, like, hey, we're still in the gaming space, but we are definitely a tech company. We definitely pay better. We don't have crunch time. You know, we, we have much more work-life balance because we have to. I mean, we've been around for 18 years building a single product and a continuous development cycle. Like, you can't do that with nine-month crunch cycles. People will burn out. Um, we had a lot of success at that time sort of recruiting from from the more established game industry and convincing people like that this was a future wave. Nowadays, the challenge is a little bit different. It's like we have all these amazing people with Fang experience like applying for our roles, like holy cow. And the question now is like, who's the best fit for what Roblox is building? And even for people with with sort of incredibly, you know, yeah, like best in industry pedigree, we're trying to find ways to make sure they have both the technical and sort of soft skill set that we think is necessary for them to succeed at Roblox. We've, we've invested a lot in standardized interview practices around assessing soft skills like drive and creativity and problem solving and making sure that we have objective standards for trying to compare those skill sets across people to remove bias from our hiring process. We also think a lot about, what, like, are we over-indexed on FANG talent at this point? Should we be looking at startups? How does that play into our corp dev process, aqua hires, and all this stuff that, like, we, was just a pipe dream six years ago? I want to go back to the competitive advantage question, because that sounds like that unlocked the whole era to get into the whole new class of, like, quote-unquote challenges and stuff like that. 
for somebody who maybe is sitting at like a company size of 100 people, is there any advice or perspectives you would give somebody who maybe are like, like to help them identify their competitive advantage in terms of like the hiring context? Yeah. So I didn't come into Roblox knowing that working at AAA companies wasn't particularly fun. As I came into Roblox and started talking to the employees that were already here and understanding about where they came from and why they were working at Roblox instead of one of the big AAA studios, those competitive advantages became clear. Like, hey, these are people who value an engineering first solution to problems and who value taking the long view in how they're building systems and maintaining those systems people who value work-life balance and value innovation over execution speed. I wish I could say I was smart enough to like sit down and make this like a formal study where I'm like cataloging all these things and coming out with a thesis around how to hire, but like it just emerged over time and it emerged over sort of a bunch of informal experimentation around, oh, we, we have this coming candidate coming in and they have this background, you know, did they end up taking the offer and passing our bar or not? But it, in hindsight, was a very, you know, a critical process because, you have to go find incredible people. You have to continually raise the bar for every new hire that you bring in if you're going to, over time, build one of the best engineering teams in the industry. And so finding ways to do that despite your disadvantages, scale, you know, quality of recruiting teams and sourcing talent, you know, brand name recognition, it, you, know, you, you have to find some areas where you have competitive advantages as well. I want to zoom back even further in terms of like the team scaling phase. So going to the period of like building an engineering team from from scratch, so like in more of like the earlier formative times, like what's your perspective on that? What have you found helpful in, in like that early, early stage? Yeah. So again, even at Snowshoe, I was founder and CEO, but I didn't write production code. I was deeply involved in the creation of our technology, but I, I needed a team to implement it. And so actually a couple different times at the company, I had to go fire, go hire engineer number one. And then by extension, I had to fire a couple of them. And it was always an incredibly unsettling and challenging process to go out and find that first person to build the culture and process and cadence for your team. My main takeaway is like, especially at that stage, you know, you're not even looking for diamonds in the rough. You're looking for like, valuable object of any kind in the rough, like the kind of people, you know, if you don't have a pre pre-established network of people that came out of your CS PhD program and already trust you, like you're going out there to hire people off the street and the really good people have a ton of options in front of you. So they, in front of them, so they have, you have to find something that's going to convince them to come work for you instead of to take that job at a big established company. Clearly, the thing you oftentimes have to lead into is what are you building and why is it important? And why is it going to change the world, right, if you're successful? And then you're making a lot of concessions around skill sets. Maybe they don't have, again, maybe they don't have formal education, but they've, they're just a hacker mentality and they've, they've built a bunch of stuff. And you're going to have to augment process and code quality and stuff like that at some point in the future, but you'll at least be making progress in the interim. Oftentimes, you're conceding on things like title, is like you don't have anything else to concede on. You can't concede on comp. You don't have unlimited funds. But like you can give that person a director title or a CTO title or something like that when they would never get that at a competing company. Like that can be an unfair advantage. It's unsettling, but an incredible an incredibly hard challenge to go out and, and start an engineering team from scratch, especially at a startup where you don't have any sort of brand name recognition. You don't have any sort of track record. So it's about taking 
taking measured risks. Does that make sense? It definitely, it definitely makes sense. The kind of the follow up question here is like when you're, when you're, because what you mentioned for me seems like a, a hard thing to reason through, which is like if you have to make concessions on skill sets, how do you think about that? How do you weigh trade offs? Where do you essentially like identify the like what, not the line? Like, as where's the where's the where's the line? What are you willing to trade off versus not? Do you have any insight around that? Yeah, I mean, like rule number one of startups is like the only people who are going to do the work are the people sitting around the table whatever your your domain of of work is everything from like payroll to product management to writing code to shipping that code and devops like there's five people working for the startup it's those five people it's nobody else and it all has to get divvied up and it all has to get done it, this goes back to a theme about scaling myself even at roblox which is like early on i'm doing all of it <laughs> right like uh or or it's just me and my co-founders doing all of it and so the question is really when we go out to hire bring in our our next person how much can they take off of the plate of the people who are already here and what are the things that they're going to be better at doing than the people who are already here and, and can we find the right balance there right so when we went out to hire our first engineers like again like i wasn't writing we had one of our co-founders who sort of taught themselves ios development and build our first app and I was sort of working through the algorithm and the hardware manufacturing process for, for the product that we were building. But like, we clearly needed somebody who could help us build scalable online systems. And so that was our, our main focus. And like, we brought them in and we gave them a CTO title, but like, we had to get somebody and not, neither of us was really in a position to, to learn the technology stack that was necessary to do it. But it dramatically augmented the work that had to be done. And then our next hire was, you know, sort of a, a front end engineer who could take on a lot of the client side work. We planned to go out and hire uh, manufacturing people. We ended up solving that problem through consultants, which was really expensive, but moved a lot faster than if we had to go out and hire that person from scratch. But it's, it's really about replacing yourself and finding people who are much, much better at doing those things than you are. And again, like you're never going to find the perfect person. It just doesn't exist at the startup uh, at the startup stage. So it's about making taking reasoned risks. You know, they've burned out at a couple other places. Can we deal with somebody who's a little bit more abrasive? There's a lot of different concessions that you have to make. But on the grand scheme of things, are they going to be net additive to the capabilities of the team? We've kind of we've wound through almost like this whole cyclical journey from early stage experience to scaling your, yourself to a, a much greater capacity in the theme of, of like how we first began. What would you say to other folks who maybe come from a non-traditional engineering background and maybe find themselves in engineering management looking to, to be a part of this explosively scaling wave of growing a company and are facing people saying, you're not an engineer by training. What are you doing leading all these engineers? Uh, is there a sentiment or advice you would share for folks? folks who find themselves in that position don't lean away from like i guess asking stupid questions like lean into it <laughs> um the amount of imposter syndrome that exists across this industry is kind of staggering and all, as a result many people are afraid to ask simple questions when even when they don't know the answer and even when it's important to the conversation it's really uncommon for people to ask clarifying questions in a technical discussion that are actually misplaced Right. Like often, almost always, that's a net positive to the conversation because it drives alignment and it drives net understanding across the entire team that's having the conversation. So lean into it and set your again, set your goal as being able to participate in the conversation at the deepest level possible, even if you're not the one who's going to write the code. Such a powerful, I love that last, that last sentiment. That's so great. All right. We've got, we've got a couple rapid fire questions for you, Klaus, to, to wrap us all up. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go. What are you reading or listening to right now? 
I just finished reading a book called Skunk Works, which is about the development of like the SR-71 spy plane and the F-117 stealth fighter bomber thing. I'm not like a huge military guy, but the book was recommended to me because it was written by the second person to lead the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, which came up with all these incredibly innovative weapon systems or whatever. And it was just really interesting because they talk about like Kelly Johnson, who founded the Skunk Works, had these like, I can't remember, 17 rules or something like that for like how to operate the Skunk Works. And the number of those that are like directly relevant to technology industry is pretty staggering, even if they make weapons and we make avatars. <laughs> That's great. Um, if you if you like that genre and some of the analogies, I might offer a rec- an additional recommendation down that rabbit hole. That book sounds awesome. I'm going to check it out. But um, John Boyd, the story of John Boyd, he basically wrote like the strategy playbook behind fighter jet tactics. And then like essentially had this like famous briefing about the people who win are the ones who learn faster. So he invented like the OODA loop and stuff like that. So su- super cool. Definitely. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? I am not really big on like the business top seller list. So like most of my methodologies don't really have brand names that have books out there about them or anything like that. One of the few books in that space that I found like a ton of value from is Ben Horowitz. Like I think it's called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And just the concept that, that leaning in to what is hard is the thing that can help differentiate you in the marketplace. And like, if it's hard, it's hard for everybody. And so the people who can get to the solution fastest and best or have a huge outsized opportunity in the marketplace, like it's been really powerful throughout my career. Um, and the overall, the book, just in terms of like a pantheon of startup knowledge was just like super influential when I first read it. So highly recommend that. That's great. So this next question, we typically ask people about favorite in-person experiences. I, I'm offering an amendment because of just, you know, it's, it's rare that we get a chance to talk to somebody with, with a depth of experience in the metaverse. So What's been one of the most meaningful metaverse experiences with your team, company, or otherwise? Doesn't have to be the most, but like within the realm of like top five, whatever. So definitely have one that comes to mind, which is Roblox went public during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I was on the clearly like VP of engineering for a company going public. Like normally I assume at most like IPOing companies, we'd all like fly to New York and have a party and be on the floor of the stock exchanges like. CEO Dave is ringing the bell, but like peak pandemic winter of 2021, when we did this, uh, we were all sitting at home. So we rebuilt the New York Stock Exchange on Roblox, and we all went and participated in the virtual bell ringing in the metaverse. I don't have anything to compare it to. I've never been in another company that went public, (laughs) but it was like incredibly cool to get to experience that. Because it, you know, there's a bunch of benefits relative to the in-person version of that, which is that like everyone at the company got to attend, and our, you know, you got, we had this incredible mixing of all of the different roles and disciplines across our entire history of having built this thing. A bunch of former employees who had left the company were able to be there and celebrate with the rest of us, and it was just like sort of this genre-bending event. <laughs> that ended up being really, really cool and really meaningful uh, to celebrate that one sort of incremental milestone in the company's development. That's awesome. Last question, Klaus. Um, Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's resonating with you right now? You know, again, I'm not one to really fall into like the quote or mantra side of things. Like it's for me, it's really about like, let's go solve some hard problems 
and have fun while we're doing it. <laughs> um, so I don't have anyone to quote for that, but like, if you take that approach and sort of, I guess it, it falls into sort of a growth mindset type, look at the world more often than not, the end result is pretty cool for everyone involved. Fantastic. Klaus, thank you so much for your time and your stories and, and sharing lessons with, with all of us here. It was a ton of fun. Thank, no, thank you. This was super fun. It was, it was great to get a chance to connect. Really great conversation. We'd like to give a special thanks to Mesmer, the exclusive accessibility partner of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Mesmer's AI bots automate mobile app accessibility testing to ensure your app is always accessible to everybody. To jumpstart your accessibility and inclusion initiative, visit mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. You can also follow the link in our show notes. That's mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.